We're going to spend some time talking about justice and our concept of it versus a biblical concept of justice. Um, I don't think we have a, a huge discrepancy in our mind, but I think there is some. But we really want to talk about the idea of that I believe is very prevalent today that is summed up in the phrase, time heals all wounds. How many of you heard that phrase coined? Okay, a little bit better than the one I used this morning. Uh, <laughs> time heals all wounds. Just give it some time and everything will be fine. Uh, not a biblical concept, okay? And so that's what we're really going to address. Uh, our idea of, of fairness, I don't think, is too far off of the biblical uh, description of that, although um, we always bend justice to our favor. Always. We always have, permit ourselves what we seldom allow others uh, in terms of offenses, of what we are allowed to do. And that's not just Christians. It's systemic uh, among all peoples. It's not cultural. Um, you go anywhere in the world and that will be the case, we can always excuse ourselves. We always have a very difficult time excusing others. But we really want to talk about uh, the concept of God's justice with reference to chronology. We have an idea, be, and it's kind of ingrained a little bit into our judicial system, although we have <laughs> very greatly wandered from it. Uh, and that is that you should have uh, a, of course, we talk about a trial by jury of your peers, but there also is within our judicial history the idea of a speedy trial that uh, it should be handled as quickly as, as possible or as, as uh, can be accomplished given the circumstances. And that is kind of ingrained in us, that for justice to be just, it needs to be, happen very quickly. That it has to be on the heels of the event that transpired. And that is really a, a very Western, I don't say American, a very Western concept that really goes back into the Roman period and somewhat into the Greco period. Although not extensively, they still had some ideas of longevity before justice occurs. But in a Hebrew mind, um, that wasn't necessary. And justice can be meted out um, in an extended period of time, and that is satisfactory to them. Um, we would not be satisfied. In fact, uh, when we encounter people, and, and even this week they had somebody that's been arrested, they had in the newspaper that's been caught, caught 50 times. And we had a district attorney that never once prosecuted a single case against them in 50 different times they were arrested and caught for a variety of crimes all in the same category and they were caught now our new DA is going to do something about that. Um, and so we throw our arms out and says that is unjust. Or the murderer or rapist that's walking the streets. And we think, well, that's not just uh, because uh, they should be caught and convicted and executed or the, the sentence should be executed, whether that's jail time or whatever, um, should be executed right away. Um, because we have this concept that for justice to be just, 
It must be meted out quickly. And that is a Western idea. You don't find that in, in a lot of Eastern thought, not only in Hebrew, um, but also in, in Islamic concepts of there, the Middle Eastern area. Uh, and even into the East, you don't have that so much. The idea is, and, and even in the uh, Eastern religions, yin-yang, uh, of karma, of all this, and uh, only recently, only really since the Ameri Western influence in places like India, do you have people talking about instant karma. That was never, ever a part of their belief system until recently. And so the idea of karma is, is that justice comes sometime. But justice will always find its way. Uh, unfortunately, because of their belief system, there isn't a sentient being that is uh, declaring or executing or, de or uh, determining justice is simply uh, what should be, will eventually happen. And, we, and so it's that whole idea of we just sit back. And that's the mentality uh, that's borne out in Scripture, and it frustrates us. Um, because we have been ingrained with this concept of justice that it has to happen now. In fact, in Eastern concepts of justice, justice doesn't even have to happen in the lifetime of the perpetrator. So you could, quote-unquote, we would think of it, he got away with it all his life. And yet, and in fact, when you read through the latter part of 2 Kings, you're like, how could God not destroy them under that king? Why, when he was the very worst king and he was putting people through, his children through the fire of Molech, how could God not punish him right then and there? How could God delay that, not just for uh, one or two more reigns, but several reigns, and then suddenly down the road here, where this guy is well off the scene in terms of our temporal existence here on earth, uh, we find then God bringing it up and saying, I'm going to judge you as a nation because of that guy way back then. And you're like, some of you weren't even alive then. <laughs> but yet in an Eastern concept of justice, that's not only acceptable, um, but it is even applauded. That sometimes your sin can be born on another generation, and that is still justice. And this is the concept behind a biblical des des description of justice that says this, that the sins of the father will what? Help me out, finish that. Will be past third or fourth generation. That your sins can can not only is God's justice interested in you being miserable or being punished, but your punishment, your punishment is for your children, your grandchildren, your great-grandchildren to be punished by God for your sin. And we are so disconnected from that concept and idea of justice that so we come to 1 Kings and we go, wait a minute, what happened here? We're at the end of David's life. It seems that the, that the transition to his son Solomon is intact and, and uh, David is ready to just glide into eternity. Uh, he's really old. God has blessed him. He's made his mistakes, but he's made it right. And uh, he's a friend of God and, and, all that, and all the Psalms that he was has written for us and we look at this and we go 
Is he harboring resentment? No. This is an Eastern concept of justice. It is not something he has harbored, but rather something that he has never excused. And so we, this is going to be a really important concept for us when we get to our salvific understanding of your sins being taken away. And we might say, well, it sure seems like there's a lot of sinners out there that seem to be wealthy and seem to be healthy and seem to get away with it all. They seem to have everything go their way and they're just coasting along. And because we have an earthly concept of justice, uh, we think, well, you know, where's God? Why isn't he punishing them right now? Um, Because we have a Western idea of the application of justice, not realizing that God is content sometimes to reserve judgment until even the resurrection and reserve judgment for generations upon a people. And that's why it becomes very important when the Bible starts describing your sins being redeemed, being uh, blotted out, we sang about tonight. And you talked about in the Sunday school that our, our sins are, or, are just not only uh, forgiven, but expunged. They're not credited against us anymore. Um, because... Uh, for God, that is uh, critical. For, for Easter mindset, that is, that is so vital. We think of having our sins forgiven mean that I can go out and do this and this won't happen to me. And we're very temporal, we're very earthly. Uh, but for the uh, biblical mindset and a better concept of justice I'm convinced of is the whole idea that every sin I commit reserves for me, and that's what I'm going to talk about. It reserves for me a payment, a judgment, a wage of death. And so every sin I commit has the capacity to condemn me for eternity. Every one of them. Maybe I don't pay for it today. You know, not everyone that commits homosexual acts gets HIV. I mean, we can make the correlation, and I I don't doubt that, that there is a misery and a penalty and a consequence for sin today, but it's not the ultimate one. And so I always measure that out, and I say, well, some people have to deal with the consequence of their sin right away, and others don't, Um, but all of them will have a payment. The consequences aren't God's judgment. There's a distinction between that. And my daughter asked me, she's been working on her junior church lesson, you know, did God let him get away with this? And why did David let his son Absalom get away with what he was doing? Uh, was this, did God hang Absalom in the tree by his hair? Was that the work of God, judging him? I don't think so. I think that's the consequences of Absalom's sin. Just like having David have to run out, which we're going to talk about tonight, and hide from his own son killing him and defending him, that's the consequences of his lax parenting. It is not a judgment of God on him. It is just the natural result of the decisions that he made or or lack of decisions that he made to rein in his sons. And so there is still, even after you deal with the consequences of, earthly consequences of sin, 
there is still reserved for you a punishment by God for sin. And so when Jesus Christ comes in and offers you a cleansing to make you white as snow, you know, if you confess your sins, he is faithful and just to forgive your, your sins and what? Cleanse you from all unrighteousness. What he is saying is that this will not be remembered. Your sin will be separated from you as far as the east is from the west. And so they will not be, you and sin won't be connected anymore. And what we're going to find is a couple of examples here in David's last instructions to Solomon. You say, boy, this, it seemed like these guys got away with this back in the day. And David just kind of let it ride or forgot about it. Um, but no, David becomes a very good example of God's justice. It might seem to you and I reading a narrative about God's interaction with the world, he's letting them get away with it. But the fact is, is that they are recorded. They are remembered. And we are, they are in reserve. The judgment is in reserve, waiting for a day. And that's a concept that we have lost largely in our society. Uh, again, probably linked more back to the Roman idea of justice. And so we've lost track of that. And so we figure if I didn't get caught this week or this year, um, and that God's good with whatever I did in the past. No, God is recording it. He has reserved for himself judgment. And that's why when we get to Revelation, I referenced it this morning, when the martyrs are there below the throne of God and say, how long until you judge the world for what they have done to us? And God's response is, just wait a little while. We would never accept that from a judge today, right? You know, you get a guy, no, I want a decision today. I want satisfaction. I want, I want revenge. I, avengement. I want it today. And, and we would never accept that answer from a judge. But the righteous judge says, just wait a little while. Your day of vindication, of avengement, and my day of judgment will come. Just wait until the season is finished for their sin. So they can just rack up as much sin as possible, and their judgment just grows worse and worse. And so, when we come to David here, I don't want you to think, well, this is just a bitter old man that wants to take out, you know, these guys that he didn't have the courage to take out in his own life. That is not the case. This is a man of integrity that uh, recognized sin when it occurred, said nothing, or said a little bit, and, and the circumstances did not allow him to... to uh, implement justice, and so, but he didn't have to. And in fact, even in death, he is not going to try to implement it because he doesn't feel qualified to do it. But that doesn't mean that something unjust or something wrong didn't occur and that justice needs to be meted out. It did. He just recognized, just like he wasn't the one to build the temple, he wasn't the one to execute this. And so we come to 1 Kings chapter 2. We looked at the first half last week, and so we're picking up in verse 5 now. So he's told Solomon how to reign, how to rule, um, and if you want the promises of God on you and your sons, then you and each of your sons that want to rule should take heed to their way, walk before God in truth with all your heart and with all your soul. Okay? So the general term terms are done and communicated. We come to verse 5. 
He says, Moreover, you know also what Joab, the son of Zariah, did to me, and what he did to the two commanders of the armies of Israel, to Abner, the son of Ner, and Amasa, the son of Jether, whom he killed. And he shed the blood of war in peacetime, put the blood of war on his belt that was around his waist, and on his sandals that were on his feet. Therefore, do according to your wisdom, and do not let his gray hair go down to the grave in peace. And so he brings forward something very directly. He says, okay, the first order of business I want you to really consider uh, in regard to me. And, and we would, <laughs> when we think of a parent's deathbed request for a kid is always, you know, do something right, take care of your mother or your sisters or, you know, do some noble act. Uh, well, this is a noble deed, but it's not one we associate with that. He is like, don't forget that there are some people in authority in our kingdom today who shouldn't be there. In fact, not only should they not be in authority, they shouldn't even be alive. But they are because I extended them uh, a reserve. I didn't extend them forgiveness. And when you go back into the accounts, both of, of Abner and Amasa, you will find that David is unaccepted of, the, of Joab's answer of why it happened. He condemned it, but briefly and very succinctly, very brief statements against it. He was, and and it, it was demonstrable that he was, he was uh, uh, more than just a little disappointed, that he recognized this was an evil act. And in fact, uh, several times he comes to Joab and says, what have you done? You know, how can you do this? And uh, Joab then gives some remark that shows that he wasn't sorry at all. He justified himself, and then you see it just kind of dropped. Well, what happened? Well, we are in a critical stage um, where we just got done dealing with Absalom, and we we and David recognizes I need Joab right now uh, in the circumstances of the kingdom that this isn't the time nor the place, and I'm not really the person to to address this right now. But that doesn't mean that it's forgiven. It is not a blotted out sin. It is a sin reserved for judgment. And that's going to come out later on in Jude as well, uh, but that's going to be months away, and you'll remember this sermon by the time I get to that one. So <laughs> it'll be reserved in judgment. So um, there is that whole concept that I don't have to do this. I don't even really have to do it to Joab. And in fact, he doesn't. Uh, one of the curses is that Joab will always have someone in his family with an issue of blood to remind them as a clan of the innocent blood shed by their progenitor, Joab. And so David says, listen, this guy has tied blood onto him. It's a, it's a belt around his waist, and it's his shoes on his sandals on his feet. He can't go anywhere to get away from it. He can't dress himself without being reminded of it. This guy has made this define him. When you see Joab, you see a man of blood. Uh, now, I'm going to take these two terms because they're kind of cool. Uh, when we get to the New Testament, the armor of God, what defines us? There's two that we have listed here, right? You have the belt of, hmm, breastplate of righteousness, belt of, truth. Can't get dressed without it. 
Okay, can't go out in the morning without it. I know a lot of people go to Walmart in their jammies, but they shouldn't be, okay? It's embarrassing. If, it should be embarrassing to them, it's just, but instead it's just embarrassing to the rest of us. Um, so you got to belt the truth. Everywhere you go, the truth should go with you. What is your feet shod? With the preparation of the gospel of peace. You can't go anywhere without having the gospel of peace going with you. And so this mindset that if you have a belt and shoes, this isn't just uh, apparel you put on. You know, sometimes I go without a belt, uh, and, and when I weighed about 20 pounds more, I, I could do that. Now I can't, um, but I could go without a belt. Now I can't go without a belt, but because um, then it's really embarrassing. I start looking like I'm trying to be a teenager. Um, do teenagers still do that, walk around with their underwear? I, I'm just not, I don't get out much. Okay, I try to hide up in the mountains where there are none. Okay. A little less of that now. It was like a big deal 10 years ago, 5 years ago. Oh, now they're 30. <laughs> yeah, oh man, I don't know if they got it didn't get better. Yeah. You don't go anywhere with a belt and shoes. And here's what he's saying. Joab is a man defined by blood. We are supposed to be defined by truth and the gospel. It should go with us everywhere. We don't leave the house without it. We should be embarrassed not to have it. The truth and the gospel. Um, certainly the other things, the helmet of salvation, but it's just these two are listed here. And it gives you an idea of the biblical mentality of these things. This guy is, is belted with blood and his shoes are bloody. He can't get, run away from it. He can't avoid it. That's who he is. He's never apologized for it. He puts it on every morning with pride. He thinks that makes him the commander, that makes him important, that makes him whatever. And so he's never apologized for it. Joab has, has never uh, made it right or made, even attempted to do so. He's always justified himself in that. So King David comes to Solomon and says, listen, this is who this person is. Not just because he aligned himself with Adonijah, that's not of concern to me. It's because of what he did to these two generals of Israel. That he killed his allies as though they were his enemies for personal vendettas. And so he comes to him in verse 6, says, therefore do according to your wisdom. Doesn't tell him what, it's just very obvious, justice needs to be served with regard to this man. I don't even need to see it while I'm alive. I just need you, to, and, and even if you don't make it happen while you're alive, pass that on to your kids. But he's really wanting Solomon, deal with this, please. You know, don't, don't hold off um, don't feel that you're going to be guilty of anything. If you take this matter into hand, this is about justice, uh, not about bloodshed. It's about a, a, a just uh, execution, really. And so uh, do according to your wisdom, which is really cool that already David recognizes this guy, uh, even before he asked God for wisdom, was known to be wise. And by the way, how did he prove that? Because of what he asked for when, at, when offered anything. He already showed that he had a level of wisdom when God says, ask what you will, and he says, well, I'm a child, and I need to have a better idea of how to lead these people. Give me wisdom. 
And that alone it shows that he had seeds of wisdom there. And David already recognized it in Solomon. He says, listen, you're a wise young man. You, you've demonstrated that already. It's already recognizable. So I'm putting this into your hands. When you engage Joab, you do whatever you need to do according to your wisdom. But whatever you do, recognize this man is not a man of peace and he should not die honorably. He should not die in peace. And again, David has already cursed his whole line. But now he says it's time for perhaps some judgment. So we've already looked at that judgment that of uh, him running to the horns of the altar. We've already really studied that when we looked at the, 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 the way Solomon handled the Adonijah event and Joab was amongst that, setting him up and pushing him forward. But we find that basically... David says it's time to uh, execute some justice here. The second person that he wants him to execute justice upon is Shammai. Uh, and so we find that in verse 8. And see, you have with you Shammai, the son of Gera, a Benjaminite from Baharim, who cursed me with a malicious curse in the day when I went to Mahanim. But he came down to meet me at the Jordan, and I swore to him, by the Lord, saying, I will not put you to death with the sword. Now, therefore, do not hold him guiltless, for you are a wise man and know what you ought to do to him, but bring his gray hair down to the grave with blood. So, uh, let's, this is a little bit different than Joab. Joab never really acknowledged his sin. He always excused himself and rationalized it. Uh, but, we all, but we come to Shammai, and it seems that he did. And so let's um, uh, jump over into Second uh, Samuel and take a look at this. And this is going to be in chapter 19 uh, when they're, after Absalom has been killed uh, and uh, the kingdom has been restored to David. He's coming back in. And hopefully, if you're not familiar with what Shammai did, as, it, as David was leaving Jerusalem, Shammai was cursing him and throwing stones at him. And just basically chasing him out, uh, and uh, as a descendant, uh, a remnant of the tribe of Benjamin of Saul's family, we find him chasing Saul's tribe. We find him chasing David and cursing him. Well, now David is restored. Remember, David said, "Don't he, his mighty men were not to punish this man because maybe he's speaking from God. Maybe God wants me to be cursed. The way things are going, I wouldn't surprise me." So he says, no, we'll wait. And again, we would not have that level of patience to understand justice like that. Um, but he did. So he said, wait. So we come to uh, chapter 19, verse 18. It says, um, then a ferry boat went across to carry over the king's household and to do what he thought good. So he's being restored to the uh, region. It says, Now Shammai, the son of Gera, fell down before the king when he had crossed the Jordan. Then he said to the king, Do not let my lord impute iniquity to me, or remember what wrong your servant did on the day that my lord the king left Jerusalem, that the king should take it to heart. For I, your servant, know that I have sinned. Therefore, here I am, the first to come today of all the house of Joseph, to go down to meet my lord the king. But Abishai, the son of Zariah, answered and says, Shall not Shammai be put to death for this? Because he cursed the Lord's anointed. And David said, What have I to do with you, you sons of Zariah, that you should be adversaries to me today? 
Shall any man be put to death today in Israel? For I do not know, for, for do I not know that today I'm king over Israel? Therefore the king said to Shammai, You shall not die. And the king swore to him. So on this day, because Shammai comes forward and acknowledges his sin, he acknowledges it and recognizes it, and the people around David are like, that's not sufficient. Uh, this, even though he can be forgiven, he still needs to pay the price for what he's, he did because that was of his own accord. It wasn't of God. He wasn't prophesying. God didn't direct that. Um, he cursed the Lord's anointed because David is still king, whether he's on the run or from Saul or on the run from Absalom. He is the anointed king. So, just like David went didn't want to do any injury to the Saul when he was the anointed king. Shammai should have deferred as well, but he didn't. So he was deserving of death. And David here uh, does not elicit a, a true forgiveness. What he says is based upon today. Today is just a good day. I'm not going to deal with that. And he says, you shall not die. I am not going to put you to death. You deserve it. Everyone around here knows it. What is just is for you to be put to death. But I'm not going to do that. I'm going to, I, you shall not die. I'll swear to you that you will not die as long as I am king. Okay, we go, well, that's good. What a relief. And uh, this is what we perceive uh, Christ does for us when we go and confess our sins, that he forgives us that we are not going to suffer the result of sin. The consequence of this sin should have been death. And it has been put off. And we are somewhat taken back when we come to here, to this passage, and we have David say, listen, um, there is a matter that of state that you need to be aware of that... Uh, a man is deserving of death. He deserved it. He, he cursed me. But I swore to him by the Lord that I will not put you to death as a sword. And so don't hold him guiltless. And so you know what to do to bring his gray hair down to the grave with blood. So I'm going to put this into your hands. Uh, and the evidence is, is that Solomon was well aware of all the circumstances and that David had sworn to the Lord. He tells him this. I'll not put you to death. So his handling of Shammai is very different than his handling of Joab, isn't it? And so Shammai comes in and he's like, oh man, I'm in trouble. And so Solomon comes to him and he has uh, instruction from the, his father, the king. So we come to chapter 2, verse 36. And the king sent and called for Shammai. He just says, I, I want him here. Get him here. I'm going to deal with this. My dad put it in my hands. This man is not guiltless. He carries guilt with him. He cursed the Lord's anointed. We cannot let that stand in this kingdom without some penalty. But Solomon does a, a showing mercy and grace does something pretty incredible. He calls him and says, uh, Shammai, verse 36, 
Build yourself a house in Jerusalem, dwell there, and do not go out from there anywhere. Uh, you stay inside the city. You're going to dwell here. If you leave this city, you'll die. He puts it all on Shammai. You confess that you had sinned. You met David. You were the first one to go meet him on the way back. You confessed your sin. You asked for it to not be held against you. My father uh, gave you a pass on what you should have uh, received. And now um, that because of the day, because that was a wonderful day, and he made a promise to you before the Lord. And so I'm going to put this forward to you. You stay in town. And he set the boundary. You cross the Kidron. You will know for certain you're going to die. And it will be your own fault. Your blood will be on your own head. So he sets a parameter. He says, listen, you deserve death. My father gave you a promise. He kept that promise. You're still alive. Now, here is the parameter. You're going to walk in according to these parameters. You're going to build a house here. You're going to live here. You can thrive here. You can do whatever you want here, but you do not leave this city. And let me define for you, lest anyone wonder what is the perimeter, I'll tell you the Brook Kidron. You cross that brook, I don't care if someone else says that's still Jerusalem, I'm telling you that's not Jerusalem anymore. You cross that brook, you have broken faith with me, and you will die. It'll be on you, not on me. Kind of a weird deal. Um, but it is an opportunity for Solomon to sh allow Shammai to demonstrate uh, a continued, what do I want to say, a, a continued sense of understanding his guilt and a continued opportunity for him to show his remorse that it is genuine that uh, he is going to persist in this and he is going to walk the walk and so uh, to uh, evidence the fact that he is worthy of what David gave him uh, and hopefully you've already started to make some dots to what I want to see in, in the talk about in our salvific experience. And so our, David lets it go, uh, gives him a promise, and it would be real easy for Shammai to just go out and live however he wants. But Solomon says, uh-uh-uh, let's come here. There's more to this idea of forgiveness and of delayed justice than that. You don't get to go out and live however you want to live. You live the way I want you to live. You're going to live within this city walls and you leave as an act of rebellion against your king and for that you will die and it'll be your fault. It is not unjust for me to set these parameters around your life because of the sin you committed. You have technically gotten away with it. Not gotten away with it. You have technically been forgiven of it. But because of the nature of what you did, your life is going to be different from now on. 
you're going to have to live in this confined area. You violate that, that is an act of rebellion against the king, and it demonstrates what's really in your heart. Now you might say, and the, the account goes on, that what happens? Well, for years, that's, well, first of all, let's look at Shammai's response. Shammai, verse 38, said to the king, The saying is good, as my lord the king has said, so your servant will do. So Shammai dwelt in Jerusalem many days. That is a great deal. And it is. It's full of mercy. It's full of grace. It's full of, I mean, he's given land. He says, build a house. Um, you do all your, you have total freedom to live in Jerusalem, however you choose to live. Live in Jerusalem, thrive, do whatever, raise your family, whatever's left. Uh, you live your life here, and you'll be fine. You'll be safe. Now, it happened at the end of three years, three years later. Two of his slaves ran away. <clears throat> they went to Achish, the son of Machas, king of Gath, which is in the area of the Philistines. They told Shammai, saying, look, your slaves are in Gath. Verse 40, so Shammai arose, saddled his donkey, and went to Achish at Gath to seek his slaves. And Shammai went and brought his slaves from Gath. And Solomon was told that Shammai had gone from Jerusalem to Gath and had come back. And the king sent and called for Shammai and said, Did I not make you swear by the Lord and warn you, saying, No, for certain that on the day you go out and travel anywhere you shall surely die? And you said to me, The word I have heard is good. Why then have you not kept the oath of the Lord and the commandment that I gave you? The king said moreover to Shammai, You know as your heart acknowledges all the wickedness you did to my father David. Therefore the Lord will return your wickedness on your own head. But King Solomon shall be blessed, and the throne of David shall be established before the Lord forever. So the king commanded Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, and he went out and struck him down, he died. Thus the kingdom was established in the hand of Solomon. I say, whoa, what just happened? Our concept of the idea that the blotting out of our sins is a singular event in your life is not biblical. It is a continuing aspect of the Christian life that requires of us a responsiveness. And I think no book brings this out more clearly than the book of Hebrews where Hebrews gives you warning after warning after warning. Look out, beware, because if you, having received the heavenly gift, then choose to walk your own way instead of God's way, don't be shocked that there's no coming back. You might say, Pastor, you sound like you don't believe in eternal security. Not that kind. Not the kind that says I can pray a prayer one day and live however I want the rest of my life and expect to walk up before God and have my sins blotted out. That is not a biblical concept. The expectation is, is that Christ has paid the price for our sin. He has paid that penalty and it is... That reservedness is separated from us, and now there is an expectation. And that expectation is you will live as my child. 
and you rebel against that, how, the author of Hebrews asked the question, how can you come back? If you have walked away from Christ, having once been forgiven, who else is there to be sacrificed for your sin? No one. You walk away from Christ having once received, having once tasted of the heavenly gift, and you walk away, what's left for you but judgment? You have, you have reaffirmed that there was no genuineness in your heart to that commitment, or you would have taken it seriously enough to live at the balance of your days. Shemai says, salvation is great. Mercy and grace is good. This is a this is an excellent, excellent plea agreement. <laughs> I like it. I can live however I want. I just have to stay in these boundaries. No problem. And it went for three years. And for three years, everything is rosy-tosy. And, and then suddenly, he doesn't even think about it. He's only thinking about what? His own interests. Instead of King Solomon. He stopped thinking about his oath to the king and starts thinking about his own loss of two slaves. Is two slaves really worth your life? Could he not send somebody else, an agent, to go get them? It was just slackness. And yes, you can become a rebel against God by simply becoming slack in your Christian life and just not thinking about it. And now you're out there living how you want to live, and, and it's kind of just, and we, we, there's a, we use the term backsliding. I hate using that term because it means so much to so many people. Um, uh, and it's, it's not backsliding. It is drifting. That's the term used in Hebrews. If you drift away because you just didn't give any attention to your commitments to God, you are in danger of having those sins remembered. Did you lose your salvation? Well, if you want to say that, okay, I prefer to say that there was no genuineness that you would apply yourself to living your salvation because you thought it was a single act way back then in a historical record that then would be carried forward forever and ever. But the fact is, is that your salvation is a relationship between you and God. It is a covenantal agreement where you agree to something, and that is that he will be your Lord and Savior. You will be his servant, his child. And you will be responsive to him. And you aren't going to just drift off and, oh, I, I just, you know, I just started, and I, I hear this. I, I hear this from people who are in this church. Oh, I just got out of the habit. How did Shammai get out of the habit of remembering the Kidron Brook? You know, I think I would have, if I were him living in Jerusalem, I'd put in great big red flags everywhere. Where, what are you thinking, you know? <laughs> On every border of Jerusalem. <laughs> Just put a big red flag. This is a Shammai flag, so I don't leave this spot. You know, just so if, while I'm riding my donkey out, not thinking, not giving consideration to my ways, not, not even dwelling and, and meditating on my 
condition, that I am a redeemed person. I've been, I've been delivered. I've been shown grace and mercy. And God has put these parameters in my life. And now this is, defines me. And I agreed to it because it was a really good deal. And now I've gotten so slack in it that I violate it. Shows the condition of my heart. I stopped taking my salvation seriously. I stopped taking my Christian walk seriously. I, and I've heard this. I've heard this from so many. And it's saddening. It's, it's because they don't come back. I'm sorry. They just don't. I go out and confront them, and I'm the bad guy. Why? You're, it's on your own head. The author of Hebrews and of James and, and other passages, and even of Jesus and his parable of the soils and this, um, you know, that plant that was planted in rocky soil and leaped up and was a real plant, and there it was, alive and well. And we'd say, there, there's a convert, baptize him and, and add him to our numbers. And the sun comes out, and what happens? The plant dies, because it had no root. That one that's on our records as a convert, having been baptized, isn't in heaven's records, because they didn't sustain anything, and there was no fruit in their life. Christ Jesus says, I'm the vine, you're the branches. If, if you're connected to me, you're going to bear fruit, and the fruit will remain. That means it'll last. It will endure. And you've heard me teach many, many times for decades. By the way, for this church, it hasn't been decades. It's been 19 years. So technically, decades starts one year from this Sunday. This is our anniversary Sunday, I was reminded tonight. So one year from this Sunday is 20 years. So then it'll be decades. Um, but you've been hearing that saving faith is enduring faith. If your faith doesn't endure, it can't save you. Ever in Scripture... It is that consistent, enduring faith that is evidenced by uh, a life that's not, that has active relationship with God, not just a historical one. Did Shammai receive a historical forgiveness? Yes, he received it the day David crossed into uh, the land. Had a promise for this period of time. Solomon comes in and says, we're going to readdress this. Let's take a look at things. I'm going to put some parameters on your life. And, oh, we hate when the king does that. He has the right to do that, but we don't like it anyway. That God comes in and says, I want you to live like this. And it doesn't matter if I want him to live that way or not. I want you to live this way. Doesn't seem just to you because, remember, you're always more interested in justice for yourself than others. But, but our response should be, well, that's good, Lord, I'll do that. And by the way, every prophet of God strikes that deal with God. Listen to me, every, I've gone late, I know, it, but this is really precious to me. Every prophet of God strikes that deal with God. And as soon as the prophet preaches something other than the truth or disobeys God, they're doomed. Did they 
live a good life? Yes. Did they, did they speak the truth? Yes. And one prophet in particular, God says, I want you to go and tell this guy this thing, and I want you to go directly home. And on his way home, he's met by some other guy who heard about what he said there and says, oh, 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 here I am. I, God told me for you to come to my house. So the guy goes, turns aside and disobeys God. And what happens? He gets eaten by bear, lion, lion. He didn't obey God. I said, man, that's pretty rough. Every prophet of God makes that agreement. I will preach your word, and that will be the measure of me. And when I fail, I deserve your punishment. That's why the Bible says, let not very many of you be teachers. For every word that they teach, they'll be held accountable for. Yeah, I have a different set of rules for me than you do for you. And when I agreed to that with God, it was a good deal. <laughs> I said, yeah. Now I'm like, boy, this is really hard. <laughs> but I'm going to try to endure, Lord. I want to keep preaching your word. It's hard sometimes. It's not always um, easy or fun, but it's the deal. And I'm all right with it but I'm mindful of it. As soon as you stop being mindful that you have a relationship with God, not just a history with God, now you begin to understand that your salvation is not dependent upon your walk, but it is demonstrable by your walk. If you have a genuine salvation relation with God, you will be diligent to persist in being obedient to God all your life days. If you turn aside from that, then your faith is not an enduring faith. And I don't care if it's been three years like Shammai went, or ten years, or nineteen years, doesn't matter. Faithfulness is measured across not short spans of time, but lifetimes. And so, yes, there are two wonderful examples of the justice of God and its requirements on us. There will be those that we will say, yes, of course, they need to be judged because they were never sorry. Um, Joab was always saying that he was right in doing it. He was justified in doing it, um, but he wasn't, and he was unceremoniously slain at the altar. And Shammai, a tougher case, I don't, I don't disagree, but I think it's consistent in God's word that when God says, these are the parameters that I want you to walk in, and when we start getting slack and thinking, uh, and we start sliding back, we start drifting away, and pretty soon we've turned away from God, don't sit there and point back to the day you met Jesus at the river. Point to yesterday, where were you and what were you doing for God? Were you obedient? Today, am I obedient? Do I, am I walking with God? Am I, am I investing? Am I remembering? And uh, in Jude, remind. I want to remind you. Most of my job is just to remind you that you're supposed to be having an active relationship with God. Keep it up. I'm basically your cheerleader. Um, and if you don't like that idea, I'm your life coach. There you go. That's a more modern idea. Uh, I'm your eternal life coach. Um, I'm, I can't do it for you. I can't compete for you. I can't put on your jersey. 
Um, all I can do is, is say, here's what you got to do. This is what's going to please God. And I can say, go after it. Go get them. Keep it up. Don't give up. And you have to do the rest. If you have a real relationship with God, it's not going to be a burden. It's not going to be, it's, it's going to be hard sometimes, but it's not going to be joyless. You can enjoy it. And the longer that happens, the more confidence and courage and strength you have in your Christian walk, the better you're going to endure even more and more. So I think a couple of great ideas of justice here in this passage, uh, and hopefully bring it into an application of your salvation. And uh, what is God's justice like? Well, just because it seems like they get away with it now doesn't mean it's over. God will remember what will he remember on the day of judgment about you? Will he remember the day you prayed a sinner's prayer, got baptized, or is he going to remember the day you just said, eh, and walked away? He's going to remember the eh when you walked away more than a ceremonial event historically. Keep it up. You have a good deal. God has given you a really sweet deal. Live it. It's worth it. Let's pray. Lord God, we do thank you for your love for us. We thank you for your word and your spirit and uh, his unction even this hour to direct us in your word. And Lord, our prayers that we might be attentive to our Christian life, to endure, to be strengthened, uh, to encourage one another and exhort one another so much the more as we see your day approaching. And so, Lord, that we might be faithful. And we know that you are there to help us, that your spirit is within us, your people around us, your word before us. You've given us all the means to do it. It is simply for us to be attentive. And Lord, we do pray for those that have drifted away from our church. We hope not from you, um, but we fear that many times they have just neglected their spiritual lives and are in serious danger of just flat out turning away. And Lord, our prayer is that you might bring conviction in their life before it gets too late, before that neglect turns into rebellion and disobedience. And Lord, we pray that you might restore them through confession and repentance and works of righteousness. We pray this in Christ Jesus' name. Amen.